Chapter Fourteen, Part Two of Etiquette. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clarica. Etiquette in Society, in Business, in Politics, and at Home by Emily Post. Chapter Fourteen, Part Two: Formal Dinners. Importance of Dinner Engagements. Dinner invitations must be answered immediately. Engraved or written ones by return post, or those which were telephoned by telephone and at once. Also, nothing but serious illness or death, or an utterly unavoidable accident can excuse the breaking of a dinner engagement. To accept a dinner at Mrs. Nobody's, and then break the obligation upon being invited to dine with the worldlies, proclaims anyone capable of such rudeness and unmitigated snob, whom Mrs. Worldly would be the first to cut from her visiting list if she knew of it. The rule is, don't accept an invitation if you don't care about it. Having declined the Nobody invitation in the first place, you are then free to accept Mrs. Worldly's or to stay at home. There are other times, however, when engagements between very close friends, or members of the family, may perhaps be broken, but only if made with a special stipulation, come to dinner with us alone Thursday if nothing better turns up, and the other answers, I'd love to, and you let me know too, if you want to do anything else. Meanwhile, if one of them is invited to something unusually tempting, there is no rudeness in telephoning her friend. Lucy has asked us to hear Golly Kerchy on Sunday and the other says go by all means we can dine tuesday next week if you like or come sunday for supper this privilege of intimacy can however be abused an engagement even with a member of one's family ought never to be broken twice within a brief period or it becomes apparent that the other's presence is more a fill-in of idle time than a longed-for pleasure the menu it may be due to the war period, which accustomed every one to going with very little meat, and to marked reduction in all food, or it may be, of course, merely vanity that is causing even grandparents to aspire to svelte figures. But whatever the cause, people are putting much less food on their tables than formerly. The very rich, living in the biggest houses with the most imposing array of servants, sit down to three or at most four courses when alone or when intimate friends who are known to have moderate appetites are dining with them. Under no circumstances would a private dinner, no matter how formal, consist of more than one, hors d'oeuvre, two, soup, three, fish, four, entree, five, roast, six, salad, seven, dessert, eight, coffee. The menu for an informal dinner would leave out the entree, and perhaps either the hors d'oeuvre or the soup. As a matter of fact, the marked shortening of the menu is in informal dinners and at the home table of the well-to-do. Formal tables have been as short as the above schedule for twenty-five years. A dinner, interlarded with a row of extra entrees, Roman punch and hot dessert is unknown except at a public dinner, or in the dining-room of a parvenu. About thirty-five years ago such dinners are said to have been in fashion. The Balanced Menu One should always try to choose well-balanced dishes, an especially rich dish balanced by a simple one. Timble with a very rich sauce of cream and pâté de foie gras might perhaps be followed by French chops, broiled chicken, or some other light, plain meat. 
an entree of about four broiled mushrooms on a small round of toast, should be followed by bone capon, or saddle of mutton, or spring lamb. It is equally bad to give your guests very peculiar food unless as an extra dish. Some people love highly flavored Spanish or Indian dishes, but they are not appropriate for a formal dinner. At an informal dinner, an Indian curry or Spanish enchilada for one dish is delicious for those who like it, and if you have another substantial dish, such as a plain roast, which practically everyone is able to eat, those who don't like Indian food can make their dinner of the other course. It is the same way with the Italian dishes. One hating garlic and onions would be very wretched if onions were put in each and every course, and liberally. With Indian curry, a fatally bad selection would be a very peppery soup, such as croute au pot, filled with pepper, and fish with green peppers, and then the curry, and then something casserole, filled again with peppers and onions and other throat-searing ingredients, finishing with an endive salad. Yet more than one hostess has done exactly this. Or equally bad is a dinner of flavorless white sauces from beginning to end. A creamed soup, boiled fish with white sauce, then vol au vent of creamed sweetbreads, followed by breast of chicken and mashed potatoes and cauliflower, palm root salad, vanilla ice cream, and lady cake. Each thing is good in itself, but dreadful in the monotony of its combination. Another thing. Although a dinner should not be long, neither should it consist of samples, especially if set before men who are hungry. The following menu might seem at first glance a good dinner, but it is one from which the average man would go home and forage ravenously in the ice-box. A canapé, good, but merely an appetizer. Clear soup, a dinner-party helping, and no substance. Smelts, one apiece. Individual croutards of sweetbreads, holding about a dessert spoonful broiled squab, small potato croquette, and string beans, lettuce salad with about one small cracker apiece, ice cream. The only thing that had any sustaining quality, barring the potato which was not more than a mouthful, was the last, and very few men care to make their dinner of ice cream. If instead of squab there had been fillet of beef, cut in generous slices, and the potato croquettes had been more numerous, it would have been adequate or if there had been a thick cream soup, and a fish with more substance, such as salmon or shad, or a baked thick fish of which he could have had a generous helping, the squab would have been adequate also. But many women order trimmings rather than food. Men usually like food. THE DINNER TABLE OF YESTERDAY All of us old enough to remember the beginning of this century can bring to mind the typical and most fashionable dinner table of that time. Occasionally it was oblong or rectangular, but its favorite shape was round, and a thick white damask cloth hung to the floor on all sides. Often as not there was a large lace centerpiece, and in the middle of it was a floral mound of roses, like a funeral piece exactly, usually red. The four compotiers were much scrolled and embossed, and the four candlesticks, also scrolled, but not to match, had shades of perforated silver over red silk linings, like those in restaurants to-day. And there was a gas drop-light thickly petticoated with fringed red silk. The plates were always heavily jeweled and hand-painted, and enough forks and knives and spoons were arrayed at each place for a dozen courses. The glasses numbered at least six, and the entire table was laden with little dishes and spoons. 
There were olives, radishes, celery, and salted nuts in glass dishes, and about ten kinds of sugar-plums in ten different styles of ornate and bumpy silver dishes, and wherever a small space of tablecloth showed through, it was filled with either a big apostle-spoon or little Dutch ones criss-crossed. Bread was always rolled in the napkin, and usually fell on the floor, and the oysters were occasionally found already placed on the table when the guests came in to dinner. Loading a table to the utmost of its capacity with useless implements, which only in rarest circumstances had the least value, which seemed to prove that quantity without quality must have been thought evidence of elegance and generous hospitality. And the astounding part of the bad taste epidemic was that few, if any, escaped. Even those who had inherited colonial silver and glass and china of consummate beauty sent it dust-gathering to the attic, and cluttered their tables with stuffy and spurious lumber. But to-day the classic has come into its own again. As though recovering from an illness, good taste is again demanding severe beauty of form and line, and banishing everything that is useless or superfluous. During the last twenty years most of us has sent an army of lumpy dishes to the melting-pot, and junky ornaments to the ash-heap, along with plush table-covers, upholstered mantle-boards, and fern dishes. Today we are going almost to the extreme of bareness, and putting nothing on our tables not actually needed for use. THE DINING-ROOM it is scarcely necessary to point out that the bigger and more ambitious the house, the more perfect its appointments must be. If your house has a great Georgian dining-room, the table should be set with Georgian or an earlier period English silver. Furthermore, in a great dining-room, all the silver should be real, real meaning nothing so trifling as a sterling, but genuine and important period pieces made by eighteenth-century silversmiths, such as de Lamery or Crespel or Buck or Robertson, or perhaps one of their predecessors. Or, if, like Mrs. Oldname, you live in an old colonial house, you are perhaps also lucky enough to have inherited some genuine American pieces made by Daniel Rogers or Paul Revere. Or if you are an ardent admirer of early Italian architecture, and have built yourself a fifteenth-century stone-floored and frescoed or tapestry-hung dining-room, you must set your long refractory table with a runner of old hand-linen and an altar embroidery, or perhaps thirteenth-century damask, and great cisterns or ewers and beakers in high-relief silver and gold, or in calazioli, or majolica, with great bowls of fruit and church candlesticks of gilt, and even follow as far as is practicable the crude table implements of that time. It need not be pointed out that twentieth-century appurtenances in a thirteenth or fifteenth-century room are anachronisms but because the dining-table in the replica of a palace, whether English, Italian, Spanish, or French, may be equipped with great standing cups, and candelabra so heavy a man can scarcely lift one, it does not follow that all the rest of us, who live in medium or small houses, should attempt anything of the sort. Nothing could be more out of proportion, and therefore in worse taste." nor is it necessary, in order to have a table that is inviting, to set it with any of the completely exquisite things which all people of taste long for, but which are possessed, in quantity at least, only through wealth, inheritance, or collector's luck. A pleasing dining-room at limited cost. Enchanting dining-rooms and tables have been achieved with an outlay amounting to comparatively nothing. 
there is a dining-room in a certain small new york house that is quite as inviting as it is lacking in expensiveness its walls are rough plastered french gray its table is an ordinary drop-leaf kitchen one painted a light green that is almost gray the chairs are wooden ones somewhat on the windsor variety but made of pine and painted like the table and the side tables or consoles are made of a cheap round pine table which has been sawed in half painted gray-green and the legless sides fastened to the walls the glass curtains are point esprit net with a deep flounce at the bottom and outside curtains are expensive watermelon pink changeable taffeta there is a gilt mirror over a cream absolutely plain mantel and over each console a picture of a conventional bouquet of flowers in a flat frame the color of the furniture with the watermelon color of the curtains predominating in a neutral tint background the table is set with a rather coarse cream-colored linen drawn work centerpiece a tea-cloth actually big enough to cover all but three inches of table edge in the middle of the table is a glass bowl with a wide turnover rim holding deep pink flowers roses or tulips standing upright in glass flower holders as though growing in midwinter when real flowers are too expensive porcelain ones take their place unless there is a lunch or dinner party the compotiers are glass urns and the only pieces of silver used are two tall sheffield candelabra at night without shades the salts and peppers and the necessary spoons and forks the knives are ivory handled setting the table everything on the table must be geometrically spaced the centerpiece in the actual center the places at equal distances and all utensils balanced beyond this one rule you may set your table as you choose if the tablecloth is of white damask which for dinner is always good style a felt must be put under it to say that it must be smooth and white in other words perfectly laundered is as beside the mark as to say that faces and hands should be clean if the tablecloth has lace insertions it must on no account be put over satin or over a color in a very important dining-room and on a very large table a cloth of plain and finest quality damask with no trimming other than a monogram or crest embroidered on either side is in better taste than one of linen with elaborations of lace and embroidery damask is the old-fashioned but essentially conservative and safely best style tablecloth especially suitable in a high ceiling room that is either English, French, or of no special period in decoration. Lace tablecloths are better suited to an Italian room, especially if the table is a refectory one. Handkerchief linen tablecloths, embroidered and lace-inserted, are also, strangely enough, suited to all quaint, low-ceilinged, old-fashioned, but beautifully appointed rooms the reason being that the lace cloth is put over a bare table the lace cloth must also go over a refectory table without felt or other lining very high studded rooms unless italian on the other hand seem to need the thickness of damask to be sure one does see in certain houses at the gildings for instance an elaborate lace and embroidery tablecloth put on top of a plain one which in turn goes over a felt but this combination is always somewhat overpowering, whereas lace over a bare table is light and fragile. Another thing, very ornate, large, and arabesque designs 
no matter how marvellous as examples of workmanship, inevitably produce a vulgar effect. All needlework, whether to be used on the table or on a bed, must, in a beautifully finished house, be fine rather than striking. Coarse linen, coarse embroideries, all sorts of Russian drawn-work, Italian needlework, or mosaic, but avoiding big scrolled patterns, are in perfect keeping, and therefore in good taste, in a cottage, a bungalow, or a house whose furnishings are not too fine. But whatever type of cloth is used, the middle crease must be put on, so that it is an absolutely straight and unwavering line down the exact center from head to foot. If it is an embroidered one, be sure the embroidery is right side out. Next goes the centerpiece, which is always the chief ornament. Usually this is an arrangement of flowers in either a bowl or a vase, but it can be any one of an almost unlimited variety of things. Flowers are fruit in any arrangement that taste and ingenuity can devise, or an ornament in silver that needs no flowers, such as a covered cup or an epern which, however, necessitates the use of fruit, flowers, or candy. Mrs. Wellborn, for instance, whose heirlooms are better than her income, rarely uses flowers, but has a wonderful old centerpiece that is ornament enough in itself. The foundation is a mirror representing a lake, surrounded by silver rocks and grass. At one side, jutting into the lake, is a knoll with a group of trees sheltering a stag and doe. The ornament is entirely of silver, almost twenty inches high, and about twenty inches in diameter across the lake. The Normans have a full-rigged silver ship in the center of their table, and at either end rather tall lanterns, Venetian really, but rather appropriate to the ship, and the salt-cellars are very tall ones, about ten inches high, of seashells supported on the backs of dolphins. However, to go back to the table-setting, a cloth laid straight, then a centerpiece put in the middle, then four candlesticks at the four corners, about halfway between the center and the edge of the table, or two candelabra at either end, halfway between the places of the host and hostess and the centerpiece. Candles are used with or without shades. Fashion at the moment says without, which means that, in order to bring the flame well above people's eyes, candlesticks or candelabra must be high, and the candles as long as the proportion can stand. Longer candles can be put in massive candlesticks than in fragile ones. But whether shaded or not, there are candles on all dinner tables always. The center drop light has gone out entirely. Atrolliers and candlesticks were never good style, and kerosene lamps and candlesticks, horrible. Fashion says candles, preferably without shades, but shades if you insist, and few or many, but candles. Next comes the setting of the places. If it is an extension table, leaves have, of course, been put in, or if it is stationary, guests have been invited according to its size. The distance between places at the table must never be so short that guests have no elbow room, and that the servants cannot pass the dishes properly. When the dining-room chairs are very high-backed, and are placed so close as to be almost touching, it is impossible for them not to risk spilling something over someone. On the other hand, to place people a yard or more apart, so that conversation has to be shouted into the din made by everyone else's shouting, is equally trying. About two feet from plate-center to plate-center is ideal. If the chairs have narrow and low backs, people can sit much closer together, especially at a small round table, 
the curve of which leaves a spreading wedge of space between the chairs at the back, even if the seats touch at the front corners. But on the long straight sides of a rectangular table in a very large and impressive dining room, there should be at least a foot of space between the chairs. Setting the places. The necessary number of plates, with the pattern or initials right side up, are first put around the table at equal distances, spaced with a tape measure if the butler or waitress has not an accurate eye. Then, on the left of each place, handle towards the edge of the table and prongs up, is put the salad fork. The meat fork is put next, and then the fish fork. The salad fork, which will usually be the third used, is thus laid nearest to the plate. If there is an entree, the fork for this course is placed between the fish fork and that for the roast, and the salad fork is left to be brought in later. On the right of the plate, and nearest to it, is put the steel meat knife, then the silver fish knife, the edge of each toward the plate, then the soup spoon, and then the oyster fork or grapefruit spoon. Additional forks and knives are put on the table during dinner. In putting on the glasses, the water goblet is at the top and to the right of the knives, and the wine glasses are either grouped to the right of the goblet, or in a straight line slanting down from the goblet obliquely towards the right. Butter plates are never put on a dinner table. A dinner napkin folded square and flat is laid on each place plate. Very fancy foldings are not in good taste, but if the napkin is very large, the sides are folded in so as to make a flattened roll a third the width of its height. Bread should not be put in the napkin, not nowadays. The place cards are usually put above the plate on the tablecloth, but some people put them on top of the napkin because they are more easily read. When the places have been set, four silver dishes, or more on a very big table, either bowl or basket or patent-shaped, are put at the four corners between the candlesticks, or candelabra, and the centerpiece, or wherever there are four equally spaced vacancies on the table. These dishes, or compotiers, hold candy or fruit, chosen less for taste than for decorative appearance. On a very large table the four compotiers are filled with candy, and two or four larger silver dishes or baskets are filled with fruit and put on alternately with the candy dishes. Flowers are also often put in two or four smaller vases, in addition to a larger and dominating one in the center. Peppers and salt should be put at every other place. For a dinner of twelve there should be six salt cellars at least, if not six pepper-pots. Olives and radishes are served from the side-table, but salted nuts are often put on the dinner-table either in two big silver dishes, or in small individual ones. Have silver that shines or none. Lots of people who would not dream of using a wrinkled tablecloth or chipped glass or china seem perfectly blind to dirty silver. Silver that is washed clean of food, of course, but so dull that it looks like jaundice pewter. Don't put any silver on your table if you can't have it cleaned. Infinitely rather have every ornament of glass or china, and if knives or forks have crevices in the design of their handles that are hard to clean, buy plain plated ones or use tin. Anything is better than yellow-faced, dirty-fingernailed silver. The first thing to ask in engaging a waitress is, can you clean silver? If she can't, she would better be something else. Of course no waitress and no single-handed butler can keep silver the way it is kept in such houses as the worldlies, nor is such perfection expected. 
The silver polishing of perfection in huge houses is done by such an expert that no one can tell whether a fork has that moment been sent from the silversmiths or not. It is not merely polished until it is bright, but burnished so that it is new. Every piece of silver in certain of the great establishments, or in smaller ones that are run like a great one, is never picked up by a servant except with a rouged chamois. No piece of silver is ever allowed the slightest chance to touch another piece. Every piece is washed separately. The footman who gathers two or three forks in a bunch will never do it a second time and keep his place. If the ring of a guest should happen to scratch a knife handle or a fork, the silver polisher may have to spend an entire day using his thumb or a silver buffer and rub and rub until no vestige of a scratch remains. Perfection such as this is attainable only in a great house, where servants are specialists of super-efficiency. But in every perfectly run house, where service is not too limited, every piece of silver that is put on the table, at every meal, is handled with a rouged chamois and given a quick wipe-off as it is laid on the dining-table. No silver should ever be picked up in the fingers, as that always leaves a mark. In the way moderate households, which are nevertheless perfectly run for their size and type, have burnished silver, is by using not more than they can have cleaned. In view of the present high cost of living, including wages, and the consequent difficulty, with a reduced number of servants, of keeping a great quantity of silver brilliant, even the most fashionable people are more and more using only what is essential, and in occasional instances are taking to China. People who are lucky enough to have well-stored attics these days are bringing treasures out of them. But services of Swansea, or Lowestoff, or Spode, while easily cleaned, are equally easily broken, so that genuine 18th-century pieces are more apt to see a cabinet than a dinner-table. But the modern manufacturers are making enchanting sets that are replicas of the old. These tea-sets, with cups and saucers to match, and with a silver kettle and tray, are seen almost as often as silver services in simple houses in the country, as well as in the small apartment in town. Don'ts in table-setting Don't put ribbon trimmings on your table. Satin bands and bows have no more place on a lady's table than have chop-house appurtenances. Pickle-jars, ketchup-bottles, toothpicks and crackers are not private-house table ornaments. Crackers are passed with oyster stew and with salad, and any one who wants relishes can have them in his own house, though they insult the cook. At all events, pickles and tomato sauces and other cold meat condiments are never presented at table in a bottle, but are put in glass dishes with small serving spoons. Nothing is ever served from the jar or bottle it comes in except certain kinds of cheese, bar-le-duc preserves only sometimes, and wines. Pickles, jellies, jams, olives, are all put into small glass dishes. Saucers for vegetables are contrary to all etiquette. The only extra plates ever permitted are the bread and butter plates, which are put on at breakfast and lunch and supper, above and to the left of the forks, but never at dinner. The crescent-shaped salad plate, made to fit at the side of the plate's plate, is seen rarely in fashionable houses. When two plates are made necessary by the serving of game or broiled chicken or squab, for which the plate should be very hot, at the same time as the salad, which is cold, the crescent-shaped plate is convenient in that it takes very little room. 
A correct and very good serving dish for a family of two is the vegetable dish that has a partition dividing it into two or even three divisions, so that a small quantity of two or three vegetables can be passed at the same time. Napkin rings are unknown in fashionable houses outside of the nursery, but in large families, where it is impossible to manage such a wash as three clean napkins a day entail, napkin rings are probably necessary. In most moderately run houses, a napkin that is unrumpled and spotless after a meal is put aside and used again for breakfast, but to be given a napkin that is not perfectly clean is a horrid thought. Perhaps, though, the necessity for napkin rings results in the achievement of the immaculate napkin, which is quite a nice thought. End of chapter 14, part 2